I am so happy to be with all of you today. I really am. It's exciting to be together and worship. And that introduces the series we're in. We're in week three of a nine-week series, walking through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And Peter writes to churches that are feeling increasingly that they are being exiled from the culture. Just a few days ago, I glanced at a headline that said, Christianity is a threat to American culture. And so we're starting to feel that even a little more. But certainly here in these churches in the heart of what would be present-day Turkey 2,000 years ago, they were feeling exiled as the culture continued to view them as a threat to their own progress. And yet these were the people of God. And so at this point, Peter is going to take a little bit of a time out in the first part of chapter 2 and just encourage them. This is what I love about this passage. And uh, I don't know if you're a royal watcher, but today we're going to talk about God's royal family. That's how Peter put it. Like, we're a part, we may feel like exiles in this world, we're a part of God's royal family. Now, I spent the first 16 years of my life in the in the British Commonwealth country of Canada. And so Queen Elizabeth II was my queen. We would every Sunday morning, not, no, every Sunday morning, every school day morning, Monday through Friday, to start our classroom day, we would sing together, God Save the Queen. And I, it, it engendered a great respect, great loyalty to the British royal family. Unfortunately, um, that's getting pretty tarred. Whether it was... Princess Diana and Charles and Camilla and what Diana called the marriage of three and Princess Diana's tragic death and we all began to learn what paparazzi were and then a couple of years ago scandals with sexual abuse of minors related to parts of the royal family and then, and then as recently as this last week Prince Harry's tell-all book and Harry and Meghan's um, Netflix uh, documentary from a few weeks ago. I mean, we, it's full of scandal. The royal family right now is just full of scandals. And I, I, it grieves my heart. To, I had such respect for royalty. And it grieves me to, 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 to now know that, that the British royal family has been so shot through with sexual immorality and relational dysfunction. And it's on, on the world stage for everybody to see. So we're going to be coming back to the idea of royalty here, but, but I hope that doesn't taint. That's not what 2,000 years ago Peter was talking about. Because you have royalty where you have a king or a queen. And we happen to say, serve the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. And that means we are a part of a kingdom. We are under the rule of a king, and it puts us in his royal family. And whenever you think of a king and his kingdom, or a queen and her kingdom, you think of, first of all, the royal residence, right? The palaces, the castles, and then, and, and then you think about what it means to have royal status. And these are the two directions, the royal residence and the royal identity or the royal status. This is where Peter goes. And so verse 4 is going to start it out for us in chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, he's going to talk about God's royal residence here. He first of all calls this one we come to, Jesus, the living stone, capital S. 
This was an Old Testament way of referring to the Messiah, the stone. And, and he, would, he would be the cornerstone. And when you build a building, the cornerstone is what gives reference to the entire structure that would be built on it and around it. Jesus is the living stone. And then he, he is rejected by humans. That's why he's calling his readers a bunch of exiles because you, you're learning what it's like to be, be rejected by the culture, but you are chosen by God and you're precious to him. You may not be chosen and precious. You may be rejected and despised by the culture. You're living like exiles, but to God, you're chosen and you're precious. And then he goes on in verse five to say, you also like living stones, like living stones, small s. That's all of us who come into relationship with Jesus. We're the living stones and we're being built into a spiritual house. We're being built ourselves to be a residence, a house, a royal residence with the king as the chief cornerstone. We're, we're built into a, whole, into a spiritual house and he's gonna switch metaphors on us, which isn't always convenient, but to become a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We'll get to that. But that idea of being built into a house. Ephesians and Paul looked at the church in the same way. In Ephesians 2.22, after saying Jesus is the chief cornerstone of this house, he said, and in him, Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And, and every time I read that, it's kind of stunning to me. I've read it so many times I could do it by memory, but it still amazes me. We, with Jesus the chief cornerstone, we are the spiritual stones in life and relationship with Jesus, and we connect together, kind of like those bricks on the wall, connect all together. We connect together to build a royal residence, and, and here's, what we, here's what we can say about Christ Church, about this royal residence. You can't say it about the company you work for. You can't say it about the school you attend. You can't even say it about your family. This is uniquely the church built together with these living stones. He said, we become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We become the place of God's spirit. You, when you come to church, you may not always feel it emotionally, but theologically, God looks at us gathered together and says, I'm among you. I'm among you, you house my presence, you sanctuary, you residence my presence in a way no company, no educational system, no government could ever do it, or even a family. You are the spiritual stones. My presence is among you. That's why I love, we sang, our starting song was one of my favorites, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Why? For our God is surely in this place. He's in this place. And that's why we need to be gathered together. That's why we need to be together. And, and, and I was, as I was walking through this again this week, I just kind of did a note to self. Beware of becoming too cynical about Jesus' church. I'm gonna say that one more time. I wanna hear an Amen. Beware of becoming too cynical about Jesus' church. Amen. Amen. And I want to tell you, as a pastor, I wake up every morning to headlines like five reasons why you're probably discouraged as a pastor. Eight reasons why there's no hope for the future of the church. I mean, 
And, and you know what? And you and I know a few people that have heard us in church. I mean, we're just all a piece of work coming together, putting our faith in Jesus, cleansed by his blood, now with his spirit in us. But none of us are perfect yet. And, and, we, and we're connected to be this holy habitation. Is Jesus' church perfect? No. Is there a lot to be cynical about? Sometimes, yes. But I'm not going to let my heart go there. Because God's word says, theologically, the gathered church is the sanctuary of the very presence of God in the way that no other entity on the, on the face of the planet is. That's why we need the church. And when we couldn't meet in church, I just walked online and watched online. I know that another half of all of us sitting here live are online right now. And, and I'd watch it on the screen. And, and it was better than nothing. But it's nothing like being with you here. And, uh, but thank God for that. And it's better than nothing. Thank God for all of those of you who are watching. But I want to tell you, we need to be with one another. You know, about 50 or 60 years ago, you started hearing the really anti-denomination thing. And then that morphed into a decade or two later, the love Jesus but hate church thing. And, and, and now it's sort of like, I'm interested in Jesus and I definitely don't need the church, especially post-COVID. I learned I don't need the church. Listen, we need the church of Jesus Christ because it is, its cornerstone is Jesus and we are the living stones and when we're together, we sanctuary his presence in the earth. I want to tell you, your kids need church. Your kids need church more than being at every soccer game. Your kids need to watch you worship and be in the presence of God and learn how to look at this world different than the way the culture is forming them the rest of the week. We need the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I know people have disappointed me in church. I've had people hurt me in church. But I don't want to become cynical. And I have to tell you, after knowing thousands and thousands of Christians, the vast majority of them are not intentional hypocrites. They're, they're just broken people trying to, sometimes they make bad decisions and have poor attitudes, but, but most of the Christians I've known, I mean, they really want to follow Christ and there's a beauty in our messiness and that God would unify us and bring us together as his living church. That's why in the next verse, Peter says, for I, see, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone. He's the stone. He's the cornerstone of the royal residence of Jesus' church in the earth. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's worth it. We may be exiled by our culture, but we hold our heads high in a humble way because he is our cornerstone and we sanctuary his presence and we're changing the world. So that's... That's the royal residence. And now he's going to go on to talk about the royal status and talk about our identity now, our identity, our royal status. Verse 9, he said, now the world might be making you feel exile, but here's how God looks at you. You are a chosen people. And he doesn't say just you're a chosen person. That includes you individually but the beauty of his wonderful church. He said, you're a people that are not a mistake. You're not just a cultural anomaly. You are the chosen of God. You're God's chosen people. And you're a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. You may not fear that ro feel that royal some days, but you're a royal priesthood. And you're a holy nation. 
and you're God's special possession. And I always like the continuity from the Old Testament. He's really here quoting from Isaiah 19, verses 5 and 6, where Isaiah writes exclusively to Israel. This would be the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, he speaks then to Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Peter, who knew his Old Testament well, is quoting what God said about Israel, except now he is saying it to Jews, he's saying it to Gentiles, he's saying it to people no matter their ethnicity or their skin color or their economic status. In Jesus now, every one of us become God's chosen people. God's chosen people. I love that, that we're chosen by him. We're a part of God's Jesus plan in the earth. And it's not just Israel. It's any one of us who want to humble ourselves and come to Jesus. That's why we don't believe in racism. That's why we don't believe in prejudice. That's why we believe in justice. That's why we help the poor. That's why, because, because listen, if you come into the church of Jesus Christ, there's, there's no status, there's no judging. You're just part of God's chosen people. You know, and if you were there last Sunday night, last Sunday night, was nothing short of God's glory and flat-out fun. And this is how we ended the this, this service. We went over to, to uh, Sanctuary of Praise, Kojic Church, and that's Pastor Appleby, my friend, and they're, they're, that was towards the end of the service, and, and we were just celebrating. I felt like Jesus was smiling on us, and, and there we were, black and white and other nationalities, and just declaring we are one in Christ. We were declaring we are God's chosen people. Period. Hallelujah. And he said, you're a royal priesthood. And earlier when, when, when Peter shifted that metaphor and said, and we, the house becomes a priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices, we don't offer sacrifices like animals and things in the Old Testament because Jesus became our sacrifice. He shed his blood. And now we're all one in him. And it's not just to Israel. It's not just to Jews. It's to Gentiles. It's to everybody, every nationality, every tribe, and every tongue. And he says, this house becomes, be, becomes a place where where sacrifices are still offered, but not like the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, they're great verses. Uh, he, he describes for us the two sacrifices that we still offer, the sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of good works and service to the people around you. And you want to be a royal priest, God, you can't stay passive. You, you're one of the living stones making up the sanctuary of God's presence in the earth. You are chosen by him, and that's why you're there. And then we offer, we're this royal priesthood, just the priesthood of worship and the priesthood of service to our world. And he says, you're a holy nation. You're a holy nation. In Isaiah, he said, I own the whole world, but you, Israel, are uniquely to me a holy nation. Now he says to anybody that would be in Christ, you're my holy nation. You are part of the operation of my kingdom in this world. I don't want to offend anybody, but let me just point out, he did not say you're a Christian nationalist. 
He said, you're a holy nation. Christian nationalism, no matter what you think about it, does involve the kingdoms of this world, and it often clouds the clarity of the gospel to those outside the church. He doesn't say you're Christian nationalists even. He said you are a holy nation. You're a part of the administration of the kingdom of God that's taken the gospel around this world and can make a difference and can help the poor and preach the gospel to those who are lost. You are a part of God's administration and you're God's special possession. You're God's special possession. You're special <laughs> to God. And, and, and this, is, this is where we trip over our identity. And one of the problems in American culture, Western culture, of, of things I do appreciate about our culture, but one of the problems is that we get so introspective. The Western mindset is so introspective. And I was talking to Pastor, we used to call, call her Pastor Crystal when she was on staff. She was in first service. She said, Pastor Jim, I've got a, I've got a new word for this year. She said, I'm going to turn my introspection into intercession. I'm going to stop being so crazy introspective and just, just pray my anxieties out more. And, and we, we trip over. We get so introspective and then we get so insecure. And we forget that in Jesus, we have a brand new identity. This whole new identity. In Christ, we sang it this morning. We're forgiven, healed, strengthened. Where we belong to him. We're his special possession. We're his royal priesthood. We're the chosen people of God. This, and this begins to change your identity. It tends to change how you look at yourself. Now, when I was in sixth grade, I was a short, skinny little guy. And the bullies in seventh and eighth grade liked to pick on me. And I got pushed around and punched up some and but when I was in sixth grade, this is the craziest thing. I don't know how this happened. My father's name is Ted Bradford. And my sixth grade teacher's name was Ted Bradford. No relation. I don't know how this happened. Here I'm sitting in this sixth grade class and with a teacher who's got the same name as my dad. But it made the bullies worry. So one, I remember like it was yesterday, one day they had me during recess outside up against the brick wall of my school, just like those bricks right there. I was my black flat against them, five of them, one of me. I, I could easily picture my future. <laughs> but they said to me, uh, you, tell us, is our teacher your dad? because they weren't going to touch me if our teacher was my dad. And he wasn't, but I wasn't going to tell them that. <laughs> but neither did I feel I loved Jesus and I didn't want to lie. So I just hedged my bets somehow. Uh, I just said, I'm not telling you. I'm not sure how I said it, but I basically said, I'm not telling you. And I, I would have thought those seventh and eighth graders would be a little smarter than they turned out to be. Because <laughs> I figured a non-answer would incriminate me immediately. Oh, he must. If he was, to save your skin, you'd tell him. You'd tell us. But my non-answer saved me from getting beat up that day. The devil has you again with your back against the wall a lot. Our self-talk can be totally vicious. 
demonic spirits want you to believe everything about yourself other than who you are in Christ. But listen, you don't need to hedge anything. On the authority of God's word, you can look at those spiritual bullies that are lying to you and harassing you. You can look them in the eye and you can say, my father is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's got your number and you're defeated. And it just gives you courage. I mean, humble courage. It's not anything to be cocky about. It's not like you're patting yourself on the back. But what a thing it is to know who you are in Christ. Rick McDaniels, a friend of mine, lives on the East Coast. He writes these weekly blogs. Interestingly enough, just this last week he wrote, the most challenging lie to correct is the one embedded in our identity. You see, what you feel about yourself isn't always the truth about you in Christ, as far as God's concerned. But the most challenging, and that's a hard lie, when you're buying the lie instead, it's hard to correct. Because our identity, we build mental models of the world and how we see ourselves. We do this to make sense of life in unfolding situations. This makes it difficult to reject the lie and believe the new truth. I mean, we, I mean some of our identities are built around incredible structures of lies as far as God's concerned. But he goes on to say, when we accept Christ into our life, we believe God's truth about us. We are now forgiven, loved, healed, whole. This is our new identity. But we can still believe the lies about us instead of the truth because the bad stuff can be all too easily remembered. But the challenge of spiritual growth is to confront the lies. Listen, not only are we the royal residents of God's presence, but you have royal status. You are in Christ. You are clothed with his righteousness. And so let me give you some for instances. Like when, when, when Peter said you're a chosen people. You're chosen by God. You know the lie comes to us, well, I don't really belong. I don't belong. I've even walked into churches and said, I don't know if I belong here. I've had people come to Central and say to me, I don't think I belong there, Pastor, because everyone seems so much holier than I am. Look, we're all just a mess who have been forgiven by God and we're being worked on and we may still, some of us, be a piece of work, but listen, there's no reason that you don't belong if you're also a piece of work right now. You got to... You got to, I had to learn to confront that. Whenever I start thinking that narrative, you know, I don't belong. I mean, that's a lie. That's the devil trying to keep you on this world's track and away from heaven. Or Peter said, we're a royal priesthood. We're a royal. That means we offer up the sacrifices of worship and praise and, and the sacrifice of good works and care for other people. But it's easy to say, I'm not worthy. Why would... Why? I'm not worthy for God to use. Well, first of all, get over yourself. Of course you're not worthy. But he has made you worthy. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And, and I'll tell you, sometimes in my life I've been harassed with the, the I'm not worthy lie. And I've had to learn to renounce it in Jesus' name and to say, sure, I might be unworthy, but it's irrelevant. I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. And he said, you're a holy nation. That means we're a part of the administration of the kingdom, not of this world, but the kingdom of heaven. That means God's going to use you. And yet the lie can come. Well, I'm just useless. I remember at 16 years old, 
lying in spite of the bullies, lying, I mean, kneeling on the front row, front seat of a, of a church just like this, and I loved Jesus, and I remember apologizing to him that I had nothing that he could use in my life. There's nothing in me that I think you could use. I was just this shy, non-leader, quiet type. All I could do was get good grades. I said, God, all I can do is get good grades. And I, I told him, I don't think you can use that. So he sends me to university, I end up leading a little Bible study. We have a spiritual breakthrough, and I've been a pastor ever since. But you know what? That sense that I had nothing in me that God could use was a lie. I felt it, but it wasn't true. And God took years to help me defeat that lie so that I could get out of myself and start doing something to make a difference in the administration of God's holy nation and the work of his kingdom. And then he says, I'm God's special possession. That's what Peter says to you. You're God's special possession. Not, not just any possession. And God's got a lot of possessions. I mean, the galaxies, the stars, the unbelievable beauty and mystery of the created universe. And yet he said, compared to that, that that's my possession. But you, you're my special possession. You're special. And the lie comes, I, I, I can't be that special. I'm, in fact, I feel unlovable most of the time. I can't believe you'd love me. Lord. But listen, to break every lie, to demolish everyone, Peter said, but you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And you're God's special possession. And no matter what we may or may not feel from day to day, this is the truth we stand on. We together as living stones make the royal residence of his presence in the earth and as those living stones we take on royal status to make a difference. And then he tells us why. Peter's now going to answer the question why. Why would we be that? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That we're going to be the showpiece of a God who takes people out of darkness into light. We're going to be the showpiece that just says to people, look, look at the difference in my life now. And look at the hope I, I have that I didn't have. He, why? So that we may declare the praises of him. We're not holy priesthood so we can pat ourselves on the back. We, we declare, we're, we're a royal priesthood because we, we, we're declaring that the praises of him who actually called us out of darkness in Jesus and into Jesus' wonderful light. About a year ago, a famous golfer, Scotty Scheffler, he was 25 years old a year ago, and, and he was number 15 in the PGA, PGA golfing world, ranked pretty high. But on April 10th of last year, he, he, he met his life challenge of becoming a master champion. And after his victory, wearing that, you know, that green jacket that the winners wear, in a press conference, he said, the reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity is not a golf score. That's not my identity. Like my wife Meredith told me this morning, he said, if you win this golf tournament... If you lose this golf tournament, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. 
You're still going to be the same person because Jesus loves you and nothing changes. He said that to the reporters. And then he said, all, all I'm trying to do is glorify God. That's why I'm here and that's why I'm in this position. Peter said, why? That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So I'd like the worship team to come. So he ends this way. Peter, in verse 10. Verse 9 is, you're chosen, you're royal, you're holy, you're special. In verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, because we're all sinners, but now you have received mercy because Jesus came, he died in our place. All of the stuff that keeps us separate from God, Jesus took on himself. He took our sin on himself. He paid the price. He was the sacrifice, capital S, so that he could be the, the living stone, capital S, of a new people, a redeemed people, transformed, who, whose identity radically changes because we are in him. I love that verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There was a song written 30, 40 years ago in the charismatic movement. It's not the song we're going to sing in a minute. But it was written by Wayne Watson. It just goes like this. With our lips, let us sing one confession. With our hearts, hold to one truth alone. For he has erased our transgression. He claimed us and called us his own. Hear us, O spirits of darkness, so you will know where we stand. We are his servants, purchased with scars, bought by the blood of the Lamb. Why? Because we're the people of God. We're called by his name, called from the dark and delivered from shame. One holy race, saints everyone because of the blood of Christ Jesus, his son. Hallelujah.